You're listening to Unfiltered Brew, hosted by Master Cicerone, Joe Vogelbacher, and brewery founder, Eric Flanagan, out of the Sugar Creek Brewing Company in Charlotte, North Carolina. So you see that pour? That is how you pour a beer right over there. You should have the foam coming up over top of the glass a little bit, and that's uh, that's really good. Man. That's a total so, compliment, man. Cheers. Coming from a Master Cicerone? Mm. Yeah, and this... Um, you know, I had a few sips already, but I always love to see this good bit of lacing on a glass because, um, you know, that it, you know you have a clean glass, you know you have a good quality beer, and hey, man, what kind of a job is it where you can have a beer and uh, sit down and talk about uh, the great business we're in? You know, what's funny is uh, last night I was at a, you know, one of the boards that I'm on. You know, you know which one I'm talking about. We were at a board meeting, and uh, I decided to have a beer because it was at one of our accounts. And everybody's looking at me funny. And I looked at them smiling, going, hey, guys, I'm still working. That's right. And I was the only one in the entire place that could do it. So it was pretty R- funny. R&D yeah. budget. So, I mean, we're we're rolling up here now, Eric, on um, damn near 10 years, yeah, right? So crazy. I think if, if you go back in time and look at it, I think we started brewing in July of 2014. So um, July of 2024 will be 10 years. We're in our ninth now. You How does that what feel? what beer it is? First beer we ever brewed was... Um, Belgian Saison, Saison uh, start. You're right. First, you're right. First beer. You're right. It's uh, it's kind of sad to see it off the menu these days, but man, the landscape's changed, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. You know what I remember about that Saison the most was we worked our butt off all day, and then the uh, our, our next door brewer John came by and saw us, and he's like, "What are you guys doing?" And we were enjoying our first uh, beer uh, after our after our first brew day. And he was looking at us and you looked at him and said, we're done. He said, you're done? And you were like, yeah, because we had hired Tim. And he guided us through. And John ended up telling us that day that they brewed for two weeks before they even had a, a, a batch that they could consider done, done. But our first brew day um, went fairly smooth. But I still think it was like 10 p.m. Oh, yeah. It was still late. Yeah, it takes time to figure out what you're doing. It was just funny that somebody else told us, hey, uh, you're done already? new system, that kind of stuff. But, uh, and that beer was drinkable, right? We did sell that beer. Oh, Everything beer was, was great. Beer was great. Yeah. We didn't, uh, you know, sometimes in this business you have, um, you have to make a tough decision. You have to tank full of, of full of product and one tank could be 30, 40, $50,000 worth of finished product. And I think that's why it's really important um, to be able to taste the beer and understand what you're tasting. Right. And at some point, and we've done it, you know, you've, you've done it with me and we, we've um, opened that valve on the bottom of the, the tank and flushed down thirty to $50,000 down the drain. So it's like people ask me all the time when I'm out talking about beer or doing some beer education or things like that. Like, um, oh, I want to be on the brewery taste team and you guys have a taste panel. I want to be on that on that team. And I'm like, man, that's a lot of pressure and it requires a lot of training because the taste, the people that taste the beer well, we have the most valuable equipment, our sensory system on knowing whether that uh, that beer is fit to serve or not. And it's real important. Yeah. You know, the um, the biggest I know the biggest question I get most of the time is <clears throat> obviously people like to bring up quality of product and why my business partner wanted to be a master Cicerone. And the best answer I've heard is from you over the years. And it's. How can you make world-class beer if you don't know how to taste it? A hundred percent. And then that, that's kind of, and I don't know if you remember, but I think year two or three, we started developing tasting panels from the home brewers around us. Remember that? Yeah. I mean, you have to be able to um, know what quality is and what quality isn't, right? Now, the consumers know that too, and they vote with their wallet, right? And they say, oh, I, I just don't like that one. But but why? So you have to get feedback and be able to make the adjustments in the back and, uh, you know, pull the appropriate levers to, to make the beer come out a little bit better each and every time. So it's a, it's a never ending pursuit and knowing some basics about flavor gives you a huge, a huge leg up. I mean, there, there's some breweries where, um, I've tasted the beer and and I can see like, you know, you can, you can right away pick up something where they could make a minor tweak and really improve it. And, um, I think Bill, Simpson, hopefully we can have him on the show someday. De- Bill, Bill, you're going to get on this <laughs> podcast, buddy. You're coming. Bill said it best um, from Aruxa Labs. He said, 
you know, you can pick a beer up and, and taste it and pick up a flavor. And that flavor might be in the back of the head while you're tasting it. But um, you never notice it's there until you turn it off. And he said it's like, it's like walking to a room with a refrigerator running or a, a piece of equipment running. And all of a sudden, you turn that piece of equipment off. And now it's like, ah. Oh, didn't he think they're so much like better? The squeaky refrigerator that you never realized yeah. squeaked. Yeah, so that's like that with all the flavors in the background of the beer, right? So so many things are presenting themselves, and you might have one like, um, you know, one really common one that we used to get in our beer when we first started was uh, ethyl acetate. That's kind of like a solvent-y flavor. Some people call it as a pear drop. Um, it, it's a little bit fusel smelling and tasting, and when you can make adjustments, it's an ester. You make an adjustments to the fermentation profile and get rid of it. It's just so much more drinkable. Now, with the rise of the non-alcoholic beer these days, people are trying to put that ethyl acetate yep. in the beer to kind of simulate the perception of alcohol because it usually goes hand in hand with high alcohol beers. So they, they try to add that flavor. So knowing how to manipulate it and to manipulate the recipe and the, and the process to get that or take it away is a big advantage, I think. So yeah. that's why I'm, um, you know, there's a lot of haters on the Cicerone program, but you know, I want to, I think like, you and I, we had so much money invested in here. We have a big team now with over 30 employees. The, the idea is you got to set the example for your team and let them know that, you know, you take quality seriously, that kind of stuff. So I think what better way than to kind of work your gauntlet uh, way up through the Cicerone gauntlet. But I know think you, we did a good job pushing it too, though. Yeah, you know, we, we, we preached it. We had a lot of our employees. At one point, every single employee we had was Cicerone trained. Obviously, in our industry restaurant industry in general, um, very hard to find people at the moment and keep good people. You know, they go to the next thing, but still most of our staff is, you know, certified, um, certified Cicerones and, and beer um, servers, beer servers. And, um, they do a good job with, with the, with the actual customer. So informing them properly of what's happening. Yeah, no doubt. What, what do you think it's like, you know, backing up a little bit, you know, just trying to think about this the last nine, 10 years, you know, if you look at the numbers, I think we were like the fifth or sixth brewery in Charlotte mm. in the, I, I say in the craft beer renaissance, what's it like leading the sales team and marketing team? And then every month since we've been open, a new brewery has opened. You realize that? So if yeah. you look at each month and you go back, so there's a hundred in 10 years is, you know, a uh, hundred over a hundred uh, months. Right. Yeah. And now we have, damn near a hundred breweries in Charlotte and the surrounding area. Right. So that's one a month, every month since we've opened, what's that like running the sales team and, and marketing and, and trying to uh, get out there and push when every tap handle you have to fight for. So it's different now, you know, this, I mean, in the beginning we were chasing everything that we could, you know, um, for those that don't know, we're in Charlotte, North Carolina, North Carolina's got phenomenal beer. Um, Charlotte's got phenomenal beer not to take anything from Asheville or Raleigh. All, I mean, North Carolina is making phenomenal products, but uh, for me, um, when we were getting off the ground, we were chasing anything we could. We had deals with the Charlotte Hornets and the Panthers, and we were just trying to get the product out there. And, you know, like you're saying, one, then another, then another, then the next cool guy brewery, and I don't mean that in a negative way, then the next cool guy brewery. It's very hard to stay relevant. So I think that's where you did a good job in um, – really making sure that the product was so good that we could withstand that that storm. I mean, in the end, when the marketing and, and, and the sex appeal of being new goes away, the consumer really just wants to know they're drinking a good product. So for me, um, I'll go back to what you and I said a long time ago. Between Joe and I, we've got a lot of kids. Uh, and I would say that we got into this thing a long time ago knowing that this was hopefully our last job. You know, this is a marathon to me, not a sprint. And you get caught in a lot of sprints and um, I, it's impossible to sprint forever. You know, I mean, just recently we had, I mean, you and I went and saw a beautiful brewery down the street. They spent millions of dollars on right on the light rail, right inside the city limits. And you, I mean, it's hard to keep up with that over and over again. You know, so it's, it's all something for us to think about as we build our next production facility, which is coming up here soon. So, yeah, I mean, what do they say? Um, I don't know the specific statistic, but something like 90% of businesses fail after the first year. And then it's like, 
out of the ones that remain after five years, the 90% of those fail. Mm -hmm. And then after 10 years, 90% of those fail. Right. So I think like reinventing yourself and thinking about, like you you mentioned, we brewed Saison our first batch. Right. So kind of, um, reinventing ourselves from, um, in, in being flexible with the market, right. What is, what do the people want and making new things and, and, um, that kind of stuff. So that's probably the biggest headache, I think. Not not to say it um, uh, on a negative side, but the constant develop the new, develop the new. I think sometimes it, it hurts us because we don't have time to perfect what we're doing. I, I think that's something that um, isn't talked about enough. But uh, the development has been a lot of fun for us, I think. We've had a lot of fun beers come out in the past two or three years that um, I think that I think the market has pushed us in that direction too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So staying relevant, I think you can look at the Trappist, right? Then you know, when we first started, I think our goal was we're going to take some, the Trappist made some of the best beer in the world, right? And people in the Carolinas had never tasted anything like that. So, you know, you, you look at West Vleteren and West Mall and these famous Belgian breweries. And then you look at, um, you know, the Trappist came to the U.S. and opened up Spencer, And then you remember Spencer, after a little while, realized people aren't enjoying the Belgian style beers anymore as much as they were. And then, you know, you have the the importer exporters go out of business and then Spencer shifting from Belgian style Trappist style beer to uh, hazy IPAs. And then uh, not much longer after that, Spencer closed down brewing operations. So I think, you know, longevity and making it over the long haul, you have to reinvent yourself and, and kind of find new ways and keep keep the foot on the gas pedal for quality and make good things and, and treat your customers right. And there's just so many moving parts and so many good things to do um, that you have to keep doing. It's a, definitely a marathon, just, just like you said it. But, um, yeah. It was amazing. Um, you and I were talking about making the bump from bottles to cans. And that's a conversation all in itself. Cause you and I being veterans came into this thing without a, a boatload of, of money. And we invested all of our money into a bottling machine because we were going down that, what we thought was a high end Belgian inspired. And then we had to jump into a can and then being on the sales side, I was always pressuring you to try and put more of the Belgian brands in it so we could find placement. Cause you know, the grocery stores and the bottle shops, you know, they're slowly starting to get rid of the bottle condition stuff and, you kept telling me, Hey, you know, we bottle condition and, and, you know, and then you said tradi- tradition. And, yeah. And then you finally were saying, Hey, look, you know, when we see, when we see the Trappist monasteries putting stuff in cans and then we'll do it. And I'll never forget like a month later, I walked into a total wine and uh, total wine is not one of our sponsors, by the way, but I walked into total wine and there was a humongous display of Chimay in silver cans. Oh, and I sent you a picture of it and I'm going, holy smokes. And it was odd too, because they were 16 ounce, um, triples and they were shrink wrapped. The four pack was shrink wrapped instead of the, uh, the rings. So I thought that was very interesting. But yeah, I remember seeing Duval in cans too and thinking, man, the market's definitely. Maybe it was Duval. Maybe yeah. it was Duval. Yeah. Duval has definitely gone to cans. They're not Trappist, but they still make one of my favorite beers ever. Um, and I love that Belgian golden strong and you know, they, they're, famous for having really high carbonation and being stored in that bottle for months until it gets the carbonation gets in the flavor it gets just right. So, you know, um, it would be, you know, it's kind of, of course you have to mention now we mentioned Trappist and having that goal of making that, those kind of styles. And, you know, I think what makes those people special is that the monks that brew they're not motivated by money or um, fame or, you know, trying to grow their brewery as big as possible. All they're doing is really dedicating their work to God. And I think that they have um, their slogan is kind of like a work and pray. And they only make one beer. They kind of focus on it. So you said you said um, something about, you know, trying to improve that one beer over and over. And they're a testimony to what happens when you do that. Right. So you have people that have been brewing. The trap has been brewing this their style since the 1800s or maybe a little bit earlier. And then they put out an awesome product. And there's no surprise when these beers are some of the most sought after in the world. Right. So kind of why wouldn't you want to make something like that? So it was a huge, proud moment for me this year when um, 
we brought home the World Beer Cup for the uh, Belgian Abbey Ale. I mean, we're competing against all those you know famous um, monasteries and Trappist Trappist breweries, and this isn't the, this isn't the first time we've competed against that those kind of uh, brands and won. But uh, this year was especially special to see La Trappe from the Netherlands there um, come in second place, and then Firestone, who's owned by Duval, an, a Belgian brewery, come in third place, and Sugar Creek taking home the um, the gold for the Belgian quad. What a what a great career milestone! You know, I remember the first time we did a we dented the universe with our with our trap and sales was um, I think we tied Westmall at um, US Open. the U.S. Open yeah, gold beer in gold like metal. 2019 or something like that. And I remember telling myself, all right, you know, we're, we're making good beers now. And, I mean, look, you know, craft breweries win a lot of medals. I think we've just won our 35th or 36th medal, but there are some that are, are very important, especially to not so much the customers, you know, they just want to know they're drinking good beer, but to our brewers and our staff, they want to know that they're doing the right thing. And, you know, that was the very first time we got an award where I was the last one to get it. The brewers opened the package. It made the made the rounds, and then I finally got it. And I'm going, all right, I got to get this thing um, to the shop to get it framed to go on our wall with everything else. And by the time I went on social media, I saw our head brewer who never posts posted, <laughs> our general manager of our restaurant yeah. posted. You had already snapped a picture of it, and I'm going, holy moly, man, this one this one really does matter. But hey, let me back up real quick. So. Give us a book plug. No good podcast would be good without a book plug. And you were just talking about the Trappist monks. Tell them the book that you read that really oh. changed you. Oh well, it's from a from their perspective, really understanding on how they work and dedicate their life to their craft was um, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. That was one of the first ones I read when we opened the brewery, and that's about oh man, it's been a long time, ten or fifteen years since I read that. But it's about the Trappist Monastery in South Carolina. And they don't make beer, but um, they they um, I believe they grow mushrooms, um, make cheese, and I think they were harvesting eggs from hens. Um, but they always open their doors to to guests. That's one of the, their their things as the Benedictine monks do. They require if somebody asks for for a place to stay that they'll open their door. So they host frequently host guests, and the author who was a former executive television executive went down there and, and spent time and, and learned um, from them and their dedication to their work and what they're doing, spent um, several months down there and wrote the book about his experience. But I thought it was super um, applicable to what we're trying to do when we were starting the brewery, because it was trying to keep your eye off of um, the greed of trying to open a business. Everybody that first opens has high hopes that you're going to be, able to make lots of money and be successful. That's always what everybody wants to do. But instead focusing on what's going to get you there, which is making a good quality product, right? Um, and giving, doing, dedicating yourself to your work in a way that your, you know, your customer can appreciate. So, hey, we talked about the gold and the quad. I mean, what, do you, what do you say we, uh, we crack one of them open and give it a try? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, is this got, one back here cold? That one's cold. We've got, we've got, it's the best glassware we could find with logos on because we just wanted to do a podcast. But you want to show them how to pour one of these? Oh, yeah. So the cool thing about these, we used to have the Lambic baskets. That would have been, oh, there's one in the background if we want. Yeah, the, that's, that's always another cool. one too. Yeah. I'm, oh, yeah, we have one up there. But So one of the things with these with these beers, any one that you get that's bottle conditioned, is that uh, it's re-fermented in the bottle. So all the aromas from the secondary fermentation and all the uh, flavor is trapped in the in the glass with the beer. And, and it's fermented in these old champagne bottles because they're thicker and they can take more carbonation. When we put beer into a keg, we can't carbonate it so much because most draft systems are set to pour around 2.6 to 2.7 volumes of carbonation. In this bottle, we can get it more carbonated and give it a really lush, creamy foam on top um, because it can hold up to three or three and a half volumes of carbonation. So knowing that um, you know, we have the traditional Cajun cork method, so you can just pull the cork off, right? Um, I always tell people to hold the, hold the bottle on a table flat like this, put your hand on top and then, you know, it's start to unscrew the cage and see if there's any pressure behind it. If it's really lively, 
you know, like you're opening up a really high carbonated one. This is a living process when you ferment something, right? There are living yeast in there. You never know how much it fermented or um, how carbonated it is. We, we do our best to give it in a range, but um, you can kind of get the feel if, okay, is this cork going to let loose or not? And if it's not, then take the cage off, I feel like, and then you can, you know, remove the cork. So the way I do it is I always hold the, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? Of course, but I always hold the bottle from the bottom. It gives you more, a little bit more leverage. So now you can kind of twist it gently and, and pull the uh, cork out. How does that one feel to you? It feels perfect. Okay. So, you know, you can also inspect the bottle, look through the amber and see if there's um, any rings around the inside, uh, any foam around the inside. That would usually indicate a spoilage has happened in the bottle. And in this case, I can see through it and there's nothing in there. Look for any chips in the glass. Um, anything unusual, but you know, the purist will tell you, Hey, this has been aged appropriately and, it, and it's really delicate aroma. So you want to just gently ease the, the cork out. So you don't just blast all the aromas out. Um, you want to capture those, but I, I always like to have fun with it. So I, I pop the cork out like that. Cause look at that. That's so good for TV. Beer shouldn't be pretentious <laughs> in my opinion. It should be uh, fun. And that's one of the great things about beer. Are you so, the only Master Cicerone that's ever said that? Because that's a good question. A lot of people ask Master Cicerones, do you still enjoy drinking beer? Because it's, and look, I've been on the road with you and there have been times where I'm going, oh, man, here we go. <laughs> <sighs> you know, it's, you know. You get in the habit of doing that and analyzing it. But at the end of the day, you know, beer should be shared with your friends and a good environment and all that stuff influences your perception and, and um, shared at a wedding day or at a your at a birthday party or just after work one day, you know, and it's it's the third most popular beverage in the world. So we've been enjoying it for a long time. So when I pour a beer, I don't like to pick the glass up and kind of do it on the angle like this so that your whole goal in life is to not release any of the bubbles, right? I want to release the bubbles and give it a good foam so that you get the best texture and mouthfeel and experience with the beer, right? So I, I keep our glass flat like this. Now, a, uh, a bottle where it's been fermented inside the bottle, again, re-fermented, there's usually, we always add a little bit of yeast and sugar. So that, when you store these bottles, you should store them upright in your fridge. That'll settle down in the bottom and you get a, a thin film on the bottom of the, uh, of, the gla- of the of the bottle. And I don't like to pour that into the beer. It ruins the color and the clarity and it adds some bitterness to the beer. Although it's very healthy and lo- loaded in uh, B vitamins, I wanna keep it in the, in the uh, bottle. So minimizing how often I, I tilt it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth is the goal. And I wanna kind of, if I have a, some buddies here, I'd like to line up three or four glasses and do it all in one shot. That would be my target. So it's not like a wit beer. We don't wanna swirl it. We don't wanna add any of that stuff. Right. Now, there's some beers where you adding the yeast is a critical part of the flavor, but this one in particular, it's not. So I keep the glass upright. When I tell people this, they're always scared to do that. And then I, I control the foam by the distance from the bottle to the glass. So if I go way up like this and splash it in the glass, I get lots of foam. If I go down like this, I get less. So until um, I see what the foam looks like, I go close like this. And then I kind of want to foam it up and see if I can get the glass to fill in three pours. Now, you know, Eric, because we've been doing this a long time, that there's a name for this, and this is called the stacked pour, right? So um, looking specifically for filling the glass up with three pours. So right now that's our first pour, and you can see it's, I don't know, a good portion of a little bit of beer and then a lot of foam. So if as we wait and talk, you'll see the foam will get, uh, it'll die down. So Talk about this foam for a minute. Look how small those bubbles are. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really special to have something um, like this where you build the carbonation the natural way. We're not injecting carbonation into the beer. It's just yeast and sugar. It's fermenting. It has nowhere to go. So the aromas from the fermentation, the carbon dioxide from the fermentation stays in the bottle and you get these really tight, airtight bubbles. Now, um, I don't know the science behind that, which... Um, some people do, like uh, Dr. Charlie um, Bamford. Bamford, he's a he is an expert in this. They call him the Pope of uh, Foam. But when you get more oxygen in the bottle, the bubbles tend to be a little bit bigger. So the reason why these last so long, and a bottle like this could last two, three years, is because, or even longer, 
some Belgians put 20 plus years on their bottles is because when the yeast referments in the bottle, it consumes all the oxygen and it's, you know, completely oxygen free and that preserves the, the beer for a long time. So you end up getting this nice, tight, rich foam that comes in that comes out of the pour. So we'll, uh, we'll let that sit for a minute and then I'll see if I can't fill the glass up with three pours like I, I tell people to do and practice what I preach and then we'll give it a taste. So, you know, I, um, I read the book a long time ago. I think it's tasting beer or something along the lines of it with Randy Mosher. Uh, it may, it may, probably. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was a section in it where it briefly mentioned the foam on the beer. You know, most people are afraid of it. People have used old, in, you know, in college, people rub their nose and then, you know, they use the oils to kill it. And I think in that book, he mentioned, you know, you start with the foam, take a little foam in, smell the foam, take a little foam in, put it in your mouth, move it around because you do get a lot of flavor from the, from the foam. It, yeah. It's interesting. A hundred percent. I mean, and, and if, if you don't let the foam break out of the beer, when you drink it and it goes down into your belly, it'll break out there. And then you become bloated, gassy, things like that. And that's a big no-no. Right? I remembered back in the day drinking Ho Garden right out of the refrigerator. And it was just so cold that I could barely swallow it. And I didn't realize it was just because all the carbonation trapped inside that fluid, you know? Yeah. So we'll give it a second pour again, kind of foam it up. And you can already see the foam's getting thicker. It kind of shrunk down to, I don't know, half the size that it was at. Remember that time we uh, were savoring a bottle? When oh, yeah. Were, when you were trying to savor yeah, that that's, bottle? That's... Oh, boy. If you could do a YouTube um, remix on click, 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 oh, click, yeah. click. But that's fun. Like I said, beer should be fun, not pretentious. So yeah. you have, um, you know, when you, when you savor it, to our, our listeners, um, basically what that means is you take a big knife or traditionally, I think it would be a sword. The French were using a sword for champagne and a special occasion. And for pomp and circumstance, they would take the, uh, cork off in one sw- swift motion with a sword. Um, now the trick to doing, there's a trick to doing that. And I have another YouTube on that, but, um, one of the tricks is to get the neck really ice cold and then go down the seam of the bottle with your knife and then it'll make a nice, you know, clean break in the glass, and, you, and it's a really fun party trick. If you like that was something that, that I, um, you know, you're you're good at the details. When you told me you got to find the seam in the bottle, I, I I was puzzled by that, and then I realized there's a seam in every bottle. It's like a spine. You just got to follow it up, but you know, it doesn't always work the first time. There's a little bit of scare in it, right? You're worried that the whole damn thing's gonna explode. You're gonna shrapnel in the chest, but you need to sharpen end of the knife. I know that. Yeah. You know, the, the, the best way I've ever seen one of these done, I don't even know where it was, but, you know, unfortunately, people get a lot of information on Instagram these days. And no, Instagram is not a sponsor of this one either. But <laughs> um, I've seen the guys that heat up the metal prongs and they put it around the neck and oh. heat the neck up really yeah. good. And they do a table side, you know, and they heat the neck up really good and then they crack it off with the with the cork in it. Yeah. Have you seen but, the ones that I've seen some of those on Instagram, too, where people will take um like a hot stone or a hot piece of metal and they'll take a stout or something with a lot of residual sugars in it and they'll dip it in the beer while it's cold huh. and they get instant caramelization. There's a name for that. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. It's pretty cool. So and what do they do? They drink it afterwards. They dip the, it's a, as you know, a dramatic serving method. So they'll dip it in the, in the glass. It, it caramelizes and then they uh, drink Does it. Does it caramelize on, on, the, on the metal too that you dip in? I think so. I've never had one like that, but um, it'd Man, be fun. that's like when your mom makes icing, you want to lick the, lick it's the, pretty, uh, it's a pretty lick cool, the whisk afterwards. You know, it's a pretty cool kind of, uh... so there you go. Three pours, you know, right around the same. You can see the foam. It, it's like a meringue coming out the top. That's how a beer should be poured, savored, and it's time. So um, here you go, Eric. Man, Cheers. This thing looks good. Thanks for pouring mine better than yours, too. <laughs> well, mm. 10, almost 10 years to win the World Beer Cup. Yeah, it's I mean, a really, really delicious beer. And um, plum, raisin, caramel, right, it rings in at about 9% alcohol. This is something that you really, if you're just going to have one beer, you can sit down and enjoy it. Kind of one of the things that made me fall in love with this style of beers um, or Belgian beers in general is, so, is this style. Let me ask you an industry question. 
Why do you think beers like this fell out of high regard with beer drinkers? Because these were, and, and I'll give you a quick story or experience share how some you, you and I joke around about. So when we started the brewery, I remember I had to pay $250 for a six pack of West Flatterin 12 that came with two chinky little uh, West Flatterin glasses. That's how high in demand these products were. And then, you know, I won't say shortly, but three, four, five years later, next thing you know, the really awesome fruited IPAs became awesome. And then from there, we knew New England IPA became awesome. And then everybody got pissed because they didn't want to call it New England. Then it became East Coast. And now it's hazy. Like, can, we, can you believe we stayed in business for two years without ever making an IPA? You know, um, when when we talk about it, it is crazy. But in, in our defense... Anyway, I interrupted. I'm no, sorry. no. Our pale ale uh, really filled that void. Well, it still does. I mean, our, our pale ale's got... It's a very good beer, and I think that helped us. But, no, I recommend if you're a brewery out there, you have to make an <laughs> IPA. Because <laughs> the first three years, Joe and I wanted to do everything. I'll never forget our first conversation. Joe didn't want to put labels on, on the bottles, and I thought it was a good idea because we wanted to be the guys with no label. People would go, who the hell are these guys? But, um, anyway, back to my question. So, why do you think these beers became less popular in America as time went on? Well, that's a multifaceted question, and I think there's not a single answer to it. It's probably a variety of things. A um, couple things. One is, one is it's the rise of the hyper-local brewery. So with beer, beer is, it's like bread, and it's best drank fresh. So one of my big pieces of advice to people is, if you're going in this store and you're looking for a beer, besides uh, looking for a Sugar Creeks would be awesome. But and if you have a huge swath of beers there, pick up the can, pick up the bottle, look for the date and get the most fresh one. Right. Beer is like bread. So imagine if you had a chance to go to the bakery, then you would get the bread right from the bakery. Right. The freshest possible bread. That's the best one. If anybody's made bread at home, you know, right out of the oven, a couple days old, a day old. It tastes amazing. Beer is no different. So beer coming from an import coming from overseas, a lot of times um, you don't get the freshest stuff. So people are trying to support their neighborhood brewery. It's a, uh, a hyper local. They're drinking fresh beer and they just get used to that. Right. And, and American consumer likes variety. So that's one big thing. Uh, the second reason, I think, is the rise of the hazy IPAs. I think hazy IPAs kind of killed it because, uh, well, actually, if you remember when we first started, Eric, it was like right before we first started, it was. It was like everybody wanted the most bitter beer ever. And I can remember the one from Green Flash where it was, um, I forget the style, uh, name of that one, but it was like 100 IBUs and the more bitter West Coast, the better. And then that kind of faded away. And then the Alchemist came from the from New England and you yep. had the New England style, Heady Topper, and you had Pliny the Elder and those were all super popular. And I think it's those super fresh, hazy IPAs that kind of uh, were in favor, right? The hazy IPA kind of killed it. That's one thing. And then finally, at the end of the day, I think that the estuary pro profile of Belgian beers, which has a, um, you know, very typical that people, the consumer describes it as bubblegum, or you can get uh, clove, apple, banana. Um, but that's combination of spice and, and fruits that are come from the expressive Belgian yeast. I think it scares away the, you know, entry level consumer that's not used to craft beer. It scares them away. So that's why you see um, who was the big importer? Was it Johnson Brothers? Uh, um, I think so. Yeah, that they went out of business, and you think, what? That's all the best Belgian beers came from them. They're out of business, and it's because the American consumer is. You go to Total Wine, or you go to uh, the craft bottle shop, which they're they're damn near dead now too. The craft bottle shops, um, all those imports coming from Germany, Belgium. Uh, England, they're gathering dust because everyone's going to the lo hype local brewery and the hyper-local brewery. So I think that's um, a long-winded way of saying um, that's one of the reasons why that. And that's another good point, dead. too. You know, um, bottle shops aren't dead, but we've had to see bottle shops do the same thing that the craft breweries have done, right? They've actually transformed with the times. Some of our best bottle shops here in town, um, we've got some legendary ones, Brawley's Beverage. I mean, man, I've been going there almost since high school and, and 
Um, I was buying Father's Day gifts there years ago when I wasn't even in the business, when I was still in the Marine Corps because my dad loved beer. But, you know, you've seen the bottle shops transform just like the industry where you're right. Some of those beers are starting to get a little dead and the local stuff is better. And then what did we see? We saw the bottle shops. We got a really good rejuvenation from them because they started adding tap handles. Yeah. So then the bottle shops were like, instead of just going in there, finding the old dusty bottles that no one wanted or the highly sought after beers that you only drink on anniversaries and things like that. Next thing you know, they're your local watering hole too, you know? So, um, yeah, the old, I would say, cause we do have some bottle shop customers out there and I'm the sales guy. Um, the, the bottle shops have had to, uh, transform with times just like we have. And I think it's for the better because in the end, if you're a bottle shop out there and you don't have draft, uh, you're missing out on a tremendous amount of margin. Um, and yes, you could still have the dream. Like Joe and I's dream has always been to make phenomenal Belgian beers, but our number one seller by far, it's a, one of the highest selling beers in the Carolinas right now is our big O it's a fruited IPA West coast, you know? So sometimes you got to do things you don't necessarily want to do in order to do the things that you want to do, you know? Yeah. A fresh big O is, is just, um, it's terrific. So I'm glad that it's, I do love the beer. Um, but you know, we still, I, I feel really fortunate and blessed to be able to experiment with making, uh, some of the classics and doing that kind of like a reserve series where the customers can come to our tap room and, get to try them so uh, yeah. if you haven't seen i keep looking over my shoulder um we are we're extremely busy and we brew three shifts so directly behind us we're coming from charlotte north carolina in our uh tap room if you've ever been here we appreciate it but uh we're a thirty-five thousand square foot production facility so i keep looking over my shoulder because when i don't see things happening in the windows i start wondering is is the beer going to leave the building at some point when you don't see anything going on back there then a week later we've got problems so but yeah so um i mean there's there's a million things to talk about always on these things but um i don't know could you tell a little bit eric to the our listeners a little bit about i know um your time you mentioned that we're a veteran owned and operated brewery can you mention a little bit about your um your history in the Marine Corps and what made you wanted to go into the Marine Corps and, um, and, uh, just, a, just a, for a minute, kind of just talk about that and how that impacts your leadership style. I guess you guess you could say the brewery. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I never talk about being in the military, but in the past three days, I've had more people ask me about the Marine Corps thing than I've had in 10 years. I was at the YMCA yesterday and, um, I saw an old man with a USO shirt on. I told him I appreciated him doing that because it said that he was a, a volunteer. And um, he said that he was in the Marine Corps for a while and, and uh, him and I got to talking for a while and he started asking me what I did. And I did special operations in the Marine Corps and I, I did the uh, Afghanistan push and then we turned around and did the uh, Fallujah push in Iraq. But um, my leadership style comes from, you know, I, I realized this too when I turned 40, with my wife, I'm a big motivator. I like to work alongside people, you know? And when, when my wife and I turned 40, I was like, babe, don't worry, we're gonna be great. 40, 40, 40. That <laughs> does not work, guys, with your wife when you turn 40. You can just, just listen is what you should do. But um, I joined the Marine Corps right after high school, 9-11. And um, so you think 9-11, sorry to interrupt, but you think 9-11 was a motivator for you? To Absolutely. Join? So I've got people in my family uh, that were in the Marine Corps. My grandfather, my uncle, Beirut Marine. My grandfather was in the Korean War. Um, but I mean, I was uh, I played sports my whole life and I liked people. And um, when 9-11 happened, that was like the tip of the iceberg. So instead of going to some of the smaller colleges that I was going to go to to play uh, football, which was... the Looking back now, the greatest thing that ever happened to me because um, I was not mentally present in school. I appreciated the people, my friends, the culture, but um, I, I was there for things other than the education. So not going to college ended up being a great thing for me because I developed, like you're saying, the leadership skills, working alongside people. I was in a lot of special operations schools, a lot of struggle. And I mean, that's a lot what the beer business is. There is a lot of struggle in this. I mean, you and I joke around all the time. We've never lost a brewmaster to a bad thing. You know, we've 
you know, I, I'm still proud of some of our old brewmasters and brewers. You know, we had some guys go to Reinhardtskabat. I'm sorry, uh, Reingeist. I always say that, right? Um, we've had some guys bounce around, but it's hard being a brewer. And um, you realize when you dream about opening a brewery, you lay in bed going, man, all I'm going to do is this for the rest of my life. And then when you realize the malt bags, call, you know, the malt bags weigh 50, 50 pounds a piece and, and the brew house is hot, it, it, it takes Especially a lot in of motivation. Carolina summer. Yeah, it takes a lot of motivation. So um, I think that's helped me with the leadership style, especially on the sales side, too. I mean, knowing how to deal with the shit. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, are we allowed to cuss on the podcast? <laughs> usually, podcast. I, usually I, it is our podcast. So well, maybe, well, we want people to listen, so we don't want to make them mad. But so, so for me, um, I think I've always had struggle in my life. And I think that that really, it's like how diamonds are made, right? I think that's an Audi commercial or Volkswagen commercial, which is cheesy. But I mean, pressure and struggle really keep you on your toes. Yeah. And this industry is that, you know, and if you open a craft brewery, oh, yeah. it is the greatest thing ever. Like every, I don't have a problem driving to work in the morning. Like I, like I used to, you know, maybe you're out there and you, you work at a bank and you hate your job, well, hate your job, beep, hate your job. But, um, I don't have that because I realize, and, and if you, uh, if you watch beers of joy, that, that one clip they got me in where I, where I said, Hey, well, cause we used to export to the Netherlands. If somebody drinks over yet. Yeah. It's not. If somebody drinks our beer and it changes their day for the better, that's all that matters. And that's what I try to remind the brewers. So, so for me, my leadership style comes from, you know, getting in the trenches and, and working alongside our people, which I think has been a, uh, and it's yours, it's yours too, being, being in the military, but I think it really helps our culture. I think it shows our wholesalers that we care. Um, we're not invisible owners. Um, you know, I mean, you know this, but the people listening don't, um, all five of you, uh, you know, or 500, 5,000 actually. Um, <laughs> I've had two presentations, you know, this, this week already on, on the brewery and half the time our, our wholesalers and our customers can't believe that we're out on the streets working as hard as we did. I mean, you were just on the coast doing a, a, a beer school. That was awesome. I always loved Total Wine, you know? Yeah. I, and I mean, so so the, the leadership, I would say, uh, is much like yours. Uh, we're, we're a little bit different, but I mean, we bleed alongside our people and, and I think they appreciate that and it helps in the hard times. So I, I, that's awesome. I appreciate you answering that. I have two more questions and we'll probably end up uh, wrapping this up, but uh, two questions. One is, can you can you give us if you had to go back and maybe we'll do this on each each one. But, uh, um, you know, I met a lot of veterans being a veteran myself. I've met a lot of people that have served in um, overseas and not so many. I think you you were the one that told me, well, first of all, I think it's two percent of the American population actually serves in the military. And then of that two percent, only one percent has been to combat. And seeing, you know, actual combat, doing, real, you know, real combat. And out of that 1%, when you talk to people, a lot of times they don't like to talk about it. But um, you have always been um, pretty open about your experience over there. And you've shared some absolutely amazing stories with me. And I appreciate that. But uh, my first question before we end the day is, can you, give, uh, can you give us one story from your time in Afghanistan, something that sticks in your head uh, that you think our, our listeners might like uh, in Afghanistan or Iraq? And then my second question will be a follow-up is um, who you think we should have on as our, uh, our next guest. But uh, let's start with right. the Afghanistan one. So I didn't know there was going to be a Q&A on this thing on me. Usually you're the <laughs> Q&A guy. Yeah, what um, the hell? But uh, so without having blood and guts, uh, part of the story, because I was my, – my original MOS was machine gunning, but I didn't do that. Because that's a Vietnam thing. We don't set up machine gun nests anymore and wait for people to run out. Although, of didn't you walk into one at one point? I have. I have walked. We kicked the door in in Afghanistan one time, and there was a, a Russian machine gun nest in this guy's living room because he knew we were coming, and that sucked. But um, I'll say, coming back from Afghanistan, we uh, you got to realize Afghanistan's a dry country, and uh, they smoke hella weed over there. Hello, weed. Is it weed or is it opium? Uh, so maybe both. So their biggest export is opium because, you know, that was the biggest thing going into a country like that. It's it looks like the closest thing to hell on earth there is. I'll never forget looking out the helicopter and 
and thinking I'm way up in the air and seeing mountains and cliffs. I mean, if you're a rock climber, unfortunately for you, the best place to ever climb rock is in Afghanistan and you ain't going. But um, uh, it's a dry country. They smoke a lot of weed. I guess that's how they de-stress. It's hot as shit over there. It's 117 during the day. But um, on the way back, the Navy picked us up and we were coming back. We had been there almost nine months. And I think the Navy's rule, you would know this better than I would because Joe's uh, still in the Navy and he doesn't talk about it a Reservist. lot. He's, um, he's been in a while and he's been in Afghanistan as well. But um, the Navy gave us, I think, two beers on the way back. That sounds about right. We got, when I was in Qatar, we got three. Yeah, so it, two, I, maybe two on the ship. It, yeah, it, was, it might have been two or three. Yeah. So my, 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 uh, my, what is it? G rated? Is that the is is that how you rate movies? G rated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my G rated story for our, our our podcast here. We'll get deeper into it later if we need to. We'll see what type of people watch this. But I'm on the USS Shreveport, coming back, and they put all the Marines on the deck and they give us all beers. And we had just got out of combat, and I had actually lost probably 25 pounds because we were walking everywhere. We pushed so far north in Afghanistan that our interpreters couldn't even communicate with these people because there's so many dialects and uh they line us all up and they give us each two beers and i'm going holy moly and of course please don't kill me there were bud lights <laughs> and here i am 215 pounds after i lost those you know 20 something pounds and i'm telling myself how am i really going to enjoy this so i found a corner of the ship and i went in there and i cracked cracked them open and shotgunned both of them so fast as fast as i could and um i remembered uh being so buzzed off of those two Bud Lights that I had to sit down for a little while. So, um, and, and I realized it's because I hadn't had alcohol in probably a year. Yeah. Hadn't even heard of it, smelled it, anything. And um, I'll never forget that because I sat on the back of that ship on the way back to the U.S. just watching. And how long were you in country after, uh, before you had that beer? Uh, eight and a half months. It was supposed to be, so they woke us up one morning in, in, a bunch, in a bunch of foxholes in the mountains, and they said, hey, uh, we're supposed to be getting out of here this morning. And I'm like, all right, great. Plane never came. And then um, woke up the next morning, I saw a lieutenant's walking and circling up. Oops, sorry. Um, circling up, and it was like 5.30 in the morning, and here I am, I'm a corporal, and I'm looking, and I'm going, man, these guys never talk this early. Something's wrong. And five minutes later, they, they call me over. They're like, hey, you got to go tell the guys the plane's not coming. It's like, well, we already told them the plane's coming. <laughs> that sucks, you know. But, uh, yeah, it was eight and a half months. By the time we got out of there, it was nine. So on the, on the funner things, who should we have on this thing next? Yeah, that's the second question. And now this is, this is where I think you're going to be candy. So um, I will say that. Being with you on your Master Cicerone journey, I have never met so many people that are amazing, especially in our industry. So I'll name, let's see how many fingers I got. James. James Ty. Oh, oh yeah. It'd be great to have him on. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, no doubt. he's been in the, and I know you want me to say Bill Simpson and Mosher. Oh, but James would be great. We got to have some normal people on here too. Love to have right? him. James is phenomenal. Awesome. I don't Incredible. know a guy that, bounces joe and i think he's like a secret service agent to be honest with you <laughs> he lives the, the perfect beer life i just saw him drinking beer somewhere i'd like to have james bill or kara kara would be amazing kara would be fun right from there maybe we can have them both well we gotta we gotta separate them plus they're over in england plus we gotta get them to come back and do the eruxa flavor training if you guys have never done that course that is a mind-blowing course um i mean that's what, 50, 30, 50 samples a day all week long. Amazing. It's incredible. Um, from there, I would love to see uh, someone from Cicerone, whoever it may be. You have to pull those strings. And then at that point, uh, I think I'd like. How about anybody local? Well, that's where I was Anybody at. local on the, on, you'd like to get on? I know people are going to kill me on this, but Joe and I, we get along with everybody. I would like, I'd like to get some wholesaler or somebody from a wholesaler on Ooh, this. Give thing. a different perspective. Just to really, oh, yeah. that's the biggest fire in our industry. You know, and a lot of people don't realize this. Joe and I, when we opened, we were doing self-distribution, but we were also producing and trying to sell it so fast. We couldn't keep up with everything. 
So we were one of the first breweries to make the jump to a wholesaler because we thought it was a good fit for us. And look, there's bumps and, and, and hurdles down every road, but um, strength in numbers is a big deal. And, and learning how to work within um, perimeters and realizing wholesalers, there are benefits to them. So I think probably getting one of our wholesale partners on here would be, be cool, awesome yeah. too. And we've got we've got wholesalers all over the Carolinas. And, and I mean, I would like to get one on here to maybe speak from their side because I don't know if we've got small craft breweries listening. I don't know if we have potential craft breweries listening, but it's interesting um, when you hear everyone's perspective because yeah. I just had lunch with the director of Harris Teeter. Yeah. And, you know, when you have lunch with him and then you go meet with a wholesaler and then you hear what everybody's talking about, it really brings things in line. So um, uh, uh, something that we could accomplish on this podcast, I think one is being real, which I think you and I are good at. And two, I think we've got a lot of contacts that we could bring let to the camera hear. to let them hear. Yeah. I mean, um, who would you want to bring in? Well, a lot of, a lot of people talk about. Um, about the big movement in Charlotte, which uh, John Marino, owner of um, Old Mecklenburg Brewery, is our neighbor. Um, John kind of led a push against the wholesalers to expand the uh, the cap for self distribution. John's not coming on this podcast, <laughs> so uh, he's a friend. It's okay. John John led this push against the wholesalers, and they had they had kind of a war: the small brewery versus the wholesaler, right? So um, I would it would be really cool to get the perception or perspective of the of the wholesaler on you know on that that push to raise the self-distribution cap in in, uh, in charlotte a lot of people talk about that oh you're a small brewery you know you're limited by these uh, distribution caps and, and they don't really understand yeah the real story what yeah. really happened so i think that that is something we could talk about in the future and i'd love to uh, chat about and obviously we want to dig into the industry we want to talk more beer we you know um, I know we talked a lot about some Belgian stuff. But that's kind of how we started. But more importantly, you know, getting people here, um, spreading the gospel of good quality craft beer. I think that was the biggest hard part for me was Tim Linehan um, was Joe and I's, it, you know, he was our he was our guy. Hey, mentor. Yeah. Mentor. Yeah. We got him from the Seaborn Institute of Technology. And one of the first things he said to us was, hey, um, everybody in your community needs to make great beer. And he he hit us so rising hard with tide that. lifts all boats and and it was to the point where we would go to other breweries and and Tim would tell us hey you got to go tell this guy that he's his beer is messed up <laughs> and here I am going well, back no, in the day it wasn't that many yeah and here I'm going no effing way we're gonna go do that but in the end I mean yeah it's it's important that everybody mm -hmm. makes good quality beer so you know um, I guess we got a lot to we want to change the world with this podcast yeah. Huh. Well, hey, uh, it was great uh, chatting with you today, Eric. Yep. And, um, cheers to you and, hey, and to many more. Yes, sir. Cheers. cheers.